On September 11, 2001, 19 men hijacked four fuel-loaded U.S. commercial airplanes bound for West Coast destinations. A total of 2,977 people were killed in New York City, Washington, D.C., and outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The attack was orchestrated by Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. At the World Trade Center site in Lower Manhattan, 2,753 people were killed when hijacked American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175 were intentionally crashed into the North and South Towers, or as a result of the crashes. The victims ranged in age from 2 to 85 years. Approximately 75 to 80 percent of the victims were men. At the Pentagon in Washington, 184 people were killed when hijacked American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the building. Near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, 40 passengers and crew members aboard United Airlines Flight 93 died when the plane crashed into a field. It is believed that the hijackers crashed the plane in that location rather than their unknown target after the passengers and crew attempted to retake control of the flight deck. We all know of the tragedy of 9-11. You probably remember where you were when you heard the news. Today, I interviewed Donna Marino, a woman whose father, an electrician in the Twin Towers, passed away on that fateful and terrible day. She takes us inside her story of events and shares how she worked through victimhood into a space her dad would be proud of, a space of releasing, renewing, and helping others through her work as a licensed clinical psychologist to do the same. Stories are our lives and language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you the listener, ideas to work with and making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. So Donna Marino, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Can we start out our conversation today by having you introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Sure. Um, I'm Dr. Donna Marino. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and um, I'm also a certified yoga teacher and a Reiki practitioner. And I coach women who are um, who are not feeling their best, who are who are feeling depressed or anxious, and I I help them integrate science and spirituality to feel better. Well, and and what we're looking at today with your story is you come to this place of high empowerment and helping to empower others. And the reason that this stands out so strongly is because you've been in some places that are pretty rough and you've learned through those spaces how to stay in a place that is empowered, how to get to a place where you have reframed the difficult stories and found found the power that you have in your own story to make the choice to continue on with creation and positivity and all of those things that you're working with other people through your psychology practice to do. So besides all those things you mentioned, you're also a daughter. Yeah. And as a daughter, you lost your father in 9-11 and yeah. the Twin Towers collapse. Can you take us back and tell us that story? Sure. Um, 
Yeah, when I think back, it's crystal clear. Um, and the story for me really starts the night before. Because I can remember, it's sort of funny now, sort of silly. Um, like I remember being in my apartment, I was in graduate school at the time, getting my PsyD in psychology, and I was finishing up some work on the computer so that my husband and I could um, sit down and watch the movie Mr. Mom, <laughs> um, of all things. And we had um, we had just sat down to watch the movie when the phone rang and back in the day we didn't have voicemail we had um, answering machines and my father's voice came on the answering machine and so I picked it up and um, I had no idea this was going to be my last conversation with him ever and um, he was just got back from vacation and he was going back to work the next day which would be Tuesday September 11th 2001 and he had been out and he was only going back to work for three days that week. And then he was going back on vacation. He came back because his girlfriend um, worked in local politics and she needed to do something. So um, so he figured, why not work we, since we have to come back? Does that bring up all the what ifs? What if he hadn't oh, come back yeah. from vacation? What if oh, yeah. he hadn't, you know, he'd come back and but not gone in just that one day? Right. There were so many what ifs because even when he called me, he wasn't really feeling well. He thought he got a touch of food poisoning on vacation. And um, the next, you know, we had a, a normal conversation. We actually talked about he was supposed to come in October for the ceremony for my master's degree because I was earned my master's along the way to my doctorate. And that was our last conversation about making the arrangements, the hotel and stuff for him to see me the next month. Wow. What did your dad do in the Twin Towers? My father was um, an electrician with Forest Electric, and he built the towers. He, um, we like to say he was, he was there when they capped them off, and unfortunately he was there when they came down. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, my family has a strong history with, um, with building New York City, and, and that was his... So you're from New York City, but you were in D.C., which was equally as um, traumatic and catastrophic on that day. Yeah. Um, when did you actually find out that your dad was in, involved yeah. in that? Um, so that morning was the first day that I was working as a teacher assistant in one of the classes. And um, it had already happened, like the first tower had already been hit, but because I got there early, I didn't know. There was no TV or anything. But then um, it's a three-hour class, so they took a break and people people started talking and like the rumblings happened and people were talking about it. And I just chimed in. I said, oh, my father works there. And dead silence. Everyone stopped talking. And they turned around and looked at me. And I was like, oh, my God, what? Because I thought at the time there had been like several silly accidents in the news, like celebrities who thought there were pilots and, you know, they would have to land their plane. And when I heard, I couldn't even fathom the destruction, the, the, the size of it all. And when everyone stopped and looked at me, and then my teacher said, do you want to call your father? And I thought, 
can't call my dad. He's like, he's in construction. Like he's not, he's not sitting at a desk by a phone. I've never been able to call my dad at work. And then, um, the class resumed and within, I don't know, maybe a minute, another professor walked in and said, um, I'm sorry to say this, but, um, the Pentagon's been hit and you need to evacuate because we were in Arlington, Virginia, down the street from the Pentagon. And at that moment, I was like, pardon my French, but I was like, oh, shit, what is going on? This can't, this, this is bad. This is terrorism. This is bad. And at that point, my, I went into my professor's office and I called my husband, who was working near the White House. And when I picked up, when he picked up the phone and I asked him what was going on, he said to me, what do you know? And I knew that was bad. Apparently in his office, they'd all been watching the TV and he didn't know what to do. He didn't know if I should, he should call me. He, he was obviously very worried and that was his response. What do you know? And I immediately broke into tears and my thought was, I, I started like loudly saying like, my dad could be hurt. My dad could be hurt. And I couldn't fathom that he wouldn't come home. Like the terror was that he was hurt, he was harmed. And I can remember the Dean walking in and rubbing my back and getting in the elevators and leaving the building and to see this cosmopolitan area with everyone on the street, the whole city being evacuated. And there was, I was walking next to this person who was on their cell phone and he turned to the crowd and he said, one of the towers just fell. And I thought, you jerk, that's not funny. Again, like I could not fathom that reality. And then I went into the first restaurant I could to use the restroom. And when I came out, the, it had a bar and there were people sitting at the bar watching the news. Everyone was just glued. So that was the first TV yes. images that you had seen. And at that moment, the, the next tower came down. And I saw it with my own eyes. Here I was, like I couldn't, I couldn't fathom any of this. And then I look and these buildings like that I grew up with that were daddy's buildings and... Um, and I just like stared shocked and I remember just like my, my hand covering my mouth and staring and the hostess saw me and said, are you okay? And I said, my father's in that building and I walked out and you know, eventually we, my husband got to me and we drove home and, uh, I called my brother. It was crazy because like nobody was getting through on cell phones during this time, but somehow I was able to get through to people. And I, I called my brother because um, he's also an electrician and he was an apprentice at the time. And I didn't know if he was with my dad or not. And he was safe. He had gotten home. He'd been evacuated. He was actually working at the airport in New York. 
And he just said to me, like, just so lovingly, like, sweetheart, we don't know anything yet. We don't know anything yet. We have, we can't reach him, but we don't know anything yet. And, uh, you know, we got back to our little apartment in Northern Virginia and my husband started calling all of our friends and letting them know. And they started trickling into the house and bringing food and TV went on. And, but we had this, cause I was so far from my family. I didn't have any family there. All of your family was in New York? Yeah, I had one brother in Boston, and uh, and then my mom and sister and brother were in New York. And uh, my mom and sister worked in Brooklyn, near the Brooklyn Promenade, where you have a view of the Manhattan skyline. Wow. And I spoke to my mom. They were, they were still in Brooklyn when I got through, and she said, your dad's a fighter, your dad's a fighter. Was she worried? Was she sick? Like, was I would imagine for her it was a whole different level. Yeah, my parent, my parents were divorced, oh. and they had been for you know for a number yeah. of yeah. years at this point. But of course, like, they still had four children together. They were still married for twenty five years, and um, yeah, and just being being in that environment and it being so chaotic and um. Yeah. So when did you find out that he was not coming home? Um, that's really hard to say, which is kind of the thing that I don't think a lot of people know. Because um, my dad was listed as a missing person for weeks. Um, that night, my brother did call me and he said that he had heard from my father's boss and that the, my father's last known location this is another one of those what ifs he had he got in very early to work he went to a job that was I want to say I mean it was a low number floor like the 36th floor and the job wasn't ready to go and so he got called up to the 105th floor where Canner Fitzgerald was and he was on that floor for no more than 30 minutes before the planes hit. Wow. And so my my brother had called me that night and told me that. And, you know, I began to hyperventilate. And uh, he just told me, just, just hold on to your husband. Just... But really, I remember going to bed that night after watching the news and, like, nobody's really been recovered and it's like they had all these lights on down at ground zero and we're all watching and I remember like, everyone came and everyone left and now like we're here alone and I'm going to bed and I don't know anything I don't know anything I don't know where he is I don't know if he's alive I don't know and you know the next day we um the next day, the bridges and everything were open again for ground travel. There was still no air travel at this time. And uh, my husband and I got in the car. And still, like, I packed all my stuff for school with me. Like, I was going to go to New York and <laughs> work during this time. But it was just so, it was just so surreal. And there's really, like, there's no way of explaining it. It was like time stopped and everything felt 
strange and foreign and like this is the stuff of movies this is not the stuff of real life and uh i remember when we got to um when we got to new jersey and we were coming over the um verrazano bridge and we could see the skyline and at the same time that i'm watching this this smoldering skyline there was just so much thick smoke just where the buildings were and at the same time on the radio excuse me um on the radio um they were talking about how many body parts had been found so far and numbers like we so many feet have been found so many wow and i just thought my god why would you even report that like there there are three uh, more than 3000 there are 3000 people missing or presumed dead or whatever you know times that by everyone knows 10 people <laughs> like even if there are so many people waiting hoping and you're and i just i just lost it i just lost it and by the time we got to um my dad's house which was the house i grew up in i just remember pulling up and my siblings and my mom were right out front and i ran out of the car to them and the the lawn was full of people just people who loved my dad were there to to be with us and to wait At this time was there any thoughts or concern in just was there any energy at all to go toward this idea of terrorism of of who had done it and why or was it more just around the not knowing and that your dad was in an accident It was all of it I remember like yeah I mean thinking like at the time in my grief grief or fear or whatever just thinking like you know this is the government's fault and they didn't protect us and they that should have been protected airspace and how could this ever happen and it's it's the terrorists fault and we've we should retaliate things that in in the horror of the moment made sense and in the in the anger that this could even happen on you know american soil um Yeah, and it was hard because there were so many people coming in and out of the house who wanted to be there for us and wanted to support us, but then there was like the political conversation that would come out of that and their own feelings and their own anger. It was really um it was so complicated. How long was it then that he was on that missing persons list? Was it just a couple of weeks did they ever find his body? Um well, um I got a call the July afterwards that they found um bone fragments. So a year, a whole year. Yeah. Yeah. And um after that I got a call about every year. that they found something i would get like oh we found one call one one was we found 25% of his body 
we don't know what it is, but it's his DNA. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Was there ever a hope that he was coming back, or did you just know from the beginning that, you know, with the level of catastrophe that he was gone? No, for a long time I just hoped. Even after the memorial service, um, we did the memorial service in late September, which was actually on the early side for a lot of families. A lot of families couldn't couldn't do that, especially without having anything. Um, but even after the mo- memorial, I can I can still remember I would. I would sit out on my back porch of my apartment and I would sit there and uh, bargain. I would sit there and I would be like, okay, God, like there's no body. You can bring him back to me. Like he could still be out there. And I had all these like sort of morbid fantasies of like (laughs) he swam to Ellis Island and is, you know, just like crazy stuff. But like anything and like god if you can do anything and you can make miracles and you can i had this fantasy that he would just um that he would just arrive home like i could picture him in my mind walking up the steps and walking in the front door and not knowing anything that had happened and not being able to explain where he was but he would be home well, and as a psychologist, you know that that whole bargaining part is part of that whole grieving process, and yeah. you had to go through all of that. How long did it take you to get through that whole grieving process? I don't think you ever finish. Yeah? Yeah. I think that's... Um, I think we don't like to talk about grief in our culture, and I think it makes people really uncomfortable. And I think that if you haven't been through it, it's easy to say that there should be a timeline or a time that you are over it. But um, I also think that grief honors that relationship that you have with that person. That's nice. I mean, my father was, um, he was amazing. He was one of the most special people I've all, I've ever had the privilege to know. And he, he gave me so much in his in his humor, in his work ethic, in his strength, in his love of family. And I don't know that I need my grief to ever be fully gone. What's your favorite memory of him? There are so many. It's almost hard. This memory that comes to mind is really funny because it just kind of characterizes his playfulness. And at the time, I did not appreciate it. But we were on a... um, It's so silly, too. We were on a family vacation, and um, we used to go to the Adirondacks for two weeks out of the year. Um, And that's what he loved to do. And we'd travel with another family, and we'd rent these cabins. And, you know, it was just morning, and I'm getting my breakfast, and I'm like, pour my... um, you know, bowl of uh, frosted flakes and then uh, go put the um, milk, you know, turn my back, go put my milk (laughs) in the fridge and turn around and my dad's sitting there eating my bowl of frosted flakes (laughs) intentionally. Like, he was just, like, silly and playful like that. Um, I always 
told my girls, you know, he didn't have the opportunity to meet them and nor they him. But I tell them stories all the time of what he would have done with them and what he would have been like. And, you know, he would have been the grandfather and on the floor playing with the kids and, you know, popping up a tent in the middle of the living room to go camping. And that was like, that was the kind of guy he was. Is there a hardest part of this or are there just so many parts of it that are hard that it's hard to, that you wouldn't be able to say was there? Yeah, I think um, it is definitely hard to pick a hardest part because I really, I would have loved for my children to have known him. I would have loved for him to see the woman I've become and, um, you know, spiritually, I do think he does see all of that. I think that the thing that is really unique to this situation that makes it very hard that people don't know about is um, the publicness of your grief and the publicness of this tragedy and having to share something that's so intimate and personal to you with the rest of the world. And that it goes on and on and on. Yeah. Like it, it's a yeah. national event and so it's not something that you move past. It's in memorial. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's everybody like, will talk about it every year. Now that now that people have heard this, whoever listens to this, I want them to take notice of how many times they hear about 9-11 because I hear it magnified 10 times when it comes up and it comes up honestly almost every day and mm. it's 17 years later. Is this in a way a is there a positive angle of that, of that he is, you know, you know, remembered in, in yes. a way that, you know, nationally was so significant? Or is it just a, you know, ripping the Band-Aid off every day again? It can be both, really. The positive part is, you know, the never forget part and the part of, um, like, for example, my daughter's went to school on 9-11 and educated their classes about it. And That's neat. Yeah. They brought, I have a box of articles and pictures and stories and all this that I keep. And my daughter went through and grabbed articles and pamphlets from the towers that I had and, you know, things like that and went and told the story. And then that was published in the school newspaper. So... It keeps his memory alive. It keeps people remembering. Um, but sometimes it is salt in the wound, depending on where I'm at in my grief that day. And every anniversary is different, and you can't predict which are going to be the hard ones and which are going to be the easy ones. Oh, I bet. And you know, there were probably aspects of this that most people wouldn't have to deal with. Um, litigation? Yeah. Um, yeah. Doc, you know, things that had to be signed. I mean, this was, mm -hmm. what did that look like? Oh. And how did it complicate this process? Yeah, it, it definitely, it definitely complicated it. Um, for, for one, I mean, you've already lost your loved one in this really, really horrific way. And yet as his children, we were all young adults. We were not technically dependents, 
but we were not in a position to take over all of my father's financial responsibilities. And we were also not ready to lose the childhood home we grew up in, the truck that was my dad's favorite, the boat that he owned, you know, and there were services out there, American Red Cross and United Way. And I mean, there was that huge telethon with the United Way with all these celebrities, which a lot of that money never even went to the families. Um, Where did it go? I don't know. You'd have to ask the United Way. It was on 2020, an interview with the with one of the heads of the United Way. Um, there, are some, there was some shady stuff like that. Or um, Seems like there almost always is, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. And I remember, so there was the Victims Compensation Fund. And that was essentially, it sort of makes my skin crawl a little bit, quite honestly, because um, Oprah even did a, um, a show about it. And interviewed people on the street about what they thought about the victim's compensation fund. And people were saying things like, well, my mom died of cancer and nobody paid me. And my, you know, and there was this, this bitterness that these families should not get money. But what people didn't know was the victim's compensation fund was really the families agreeing to take money instead of suing the government for their neglect or suing the airlines for their lack of safety. Um, and so we had to sign away those, those rights to receive the money, but we did, how are you going to fight the airlines and the government on this anyway? And then how do you monetize a life? Yeah, absolutely. That's a tough one. Yeah. And you know, I get it. They're accountants and they're calculating how many more years would my father have worked and who were his dependents. And, you know, this 57-year-old man is not worth as much as this, you know, 25-year-old person or this 35-year-old man with four children. And I, you know, you, you can't encapsulate a life that way. So there's a lot of spaces, um, words that you've said you know, when you were talking about being in the, you know, the beginning of this, your, your mind going to almost this place of victimhood. How could this yes. happen to me? How oh, could, yeah. you know, how could the government let this happen? How could the airlines let this happen? This, yeah. this type of thing. Um, how did you get past that to a place of reframing the events so that you could move on in a healthy way? What, what yeah. did that process look yeah. like? Well, and, and that word is right, victimhood, because I was mad as heck. <laughs> and I did feel like a victim, and I did feel like somebody owes me something for this. You robbed me of my father. Um, but I think it's my father that made me reframe it, because every day, even through the grief, my thought was always, how can I live a life that honors my father? And my father was a kind, gentle, loving, hilarious, hardworking guy. He was not, um, he wasn't one to hold a grudge or resentment or, and he wouldn't want me to live my life that way. And that wouldn't serve him or me or, 
any of the people that I know I'm meant to serve in my life, my, my family, my children, and all the people, all the women that I help to inspire. So what did that look like? How did you actually rid yourself of those heavy emotions? You know, I think part of it was time and part of it was talking about it and telling my story. And part of it was choice. It was, it was really, it was choice to say, you know what? I, I don't want to live a life of anger or bitterness. I don't believe in um, profiling or racism or saying that, you know, because the the people that committed this action have this religion or this race or this ethnicity that I shouldn't like them. That's not, that's not who I am. So it's, um, I guess I'm able to see the event as the discrete event that it was and that I can't see how everything unfolds in the world. And I don't know as tragic as that event was, what good may eventually come out of it or what good has come out of it. I love that you use the word choice because we always have choice. And that's really what it comes down to. When somebody does a reframe, it's because they choose to step Mm -hmm. out of victimhood. They choose to get out of a story that's holding them back, whether it's fear-based or shame-based or victimhood-based, whatever it is. It's a choice of, I can live better than this, or I don't want to, I don't want to stay in this space that's so small and so dark and so difficult. And it always comes down to choice. It does. It does. And in the immediacy of trauma, I would never expect someone to to be able to make that choice in that moment. No, you have to move you have to move through it. You you almost (laughs) can not reframe and we've talked about this before on the podcast, but you almost can't reframe until you are way out of something and you can look back and that, you know, that way out depends, you know, that, yeah. that, that length of time is going to be different depending on who it is and the right. tragedy and what you're dealing right. with. But, but you always in the moment have to honor the emotion, have to feel it, have to go through it, have to let it be mm-hmm. whatever it is, yeah. um, in order to have that experience. But right. it's once you're past it and once you're through it, that you can say, I don't have to live in that forever. I get to find some meaning or some purpose or Mm -hmm. something that I can take Mm -hmm. away that's positive so I can move forward and onward. Right. And you did that. Yeah. Well, and I, I believe my father did that Mm. on a, on a spiritual level, or I believe that my, my father gave his life in service, in service to a greater good. And maybe, maybe there were, you know, other lives that were meant to continue um, that his sacrifice made that possible. Maybe, you know, I can't see it's it It's hard all. to know, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. There's no way yeah. to know, really. Um, but I know the kind of man my father was. And so, you know, I know the universe has a greater plan for us all. And I know for me, it's not to sit in, in misery or grief or anger or resentment. So what advice would you have from your experience and also your knowledge as a psychologist um, for people who have these hard life stories? How, what advice do you give them for being able to move past and reframe? Yeah. I say first and foremost, be gentle with yourself. You know, meet yourself where you're at and accept where you're at. But then 
evaluate if that's where you want to stay. Like, is that the life you want to lead? Is this the person that you want to be remembered as? And if it's not, just slowly begin to rewrite that story. And that might mean physically rewriting it, writing it the way that you want it to be. Another exercise that can be really helpful is to imagine yourself, you know, a year out, three years out, five years out as the person you want to be. And then write about that person and write, write yourself a letter from that person. Mm. You know, come from that higher place and that place where you want to be and tell yourself what it is you need. Tell yourself what the story is, what the reframe is. I have a friend whose um, husband cheated on her with her best friend with um, 20 years ago, and she still has not been able to move past that or through it. She still cries about it. She still is really caught up in in that story. Um, and he had at one point, not too long ago, I mean, we're talking 20 years ago and maybe two years ago, he'd made some comment to her about how he loved her and, you know, and had, he had made mistakes and that just boiled up hope in her that, you know, that maybe, you know, they could rekindle even after this long. And then she found out wow. that he actually, you know, was getting back with his second wife and, you know, all these other things. And so then mm -hmm. she's torn apart all over again. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's really a space where she needed to really let go of those things that she was caught up in. Like she, she literally let 20 years of her life go by being just caught up yeah. in this pain and not being able yeah. to move on. What advice would you give her? Hmm. Is she a mother? Yes. So the first thing I would ask her is, is this the life you would want for your children? And would you want your children to stew and suffer for 20 years? Because most likely not. And I don't think she wants to either, right. but she doesn't know how to get past it. Right. And I would ask her to start to treat herself like her own child and show herself that compassion and love and forgiveness because there's a piece of forgiveness there that needs to be worked out both for herself and for her former spouse and perhaps the the best friend as well and that's that is hard work i am not saying that is easy that is hard work that's a lot of hard work but it has to come from a place of this is in my highest good. She doesn't have to do it for them. And she doesn't even have to mean it in the beginning. But it's a it's a it's the path to releasing herself and giving herself the freedom and the love that she deserves. And by holding on to that resentment, she's also keeping herself from creating any relationship mm -hmm. that that would value her and that would see the goodness in her and would treat her the way she deserves to be treated. Mm -hmm. So we know that and we, and even she knows uh -huh. that, right? Like uh -huh. she knows I, I need to let go of this, but she just doesn't know how. So yeah. what advice, you know, how do you forgive? You had a lot mm -hmm. of people to forgive in this story, mm -hmm. you know, the, mm -hmm. the, um, people who hijacked the plane, you know, the, the feelings that the 
airline had some responsibility, mm-hmm. the feelings that the government had responsibility, the, you know, even your, you, your dad's girlfriend needing to come back, you know, to yeah. the city for three days and him coming back with her, which I don't know if you mentioned that part of the story or not, but you know, there's yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. What if that, sure. you know, how do you forgive all those places? Because forgiveness is one of those things that of course we have to do it's for us it's not for the other people but it's one of the hardest things we do ever it is it is it has to be a daily practice it has to be all of the all of these wellness practices they're just like exercise and if you do them one time it's not going to have any effect you might feel good for a moment but you know, you have to build your wellness muscles just like your physical muscles and you have to practice every day. And that could be, you know, writing a forgiveness letter each day. It could be writing a list of people to forgive. I mean, there's a lot of different strategies. I would also recommend energy work because for me, some of this happened, it's a choice, but it also happened naturally with time. And for someone who's Like, I know this, but I still can't get it done after 20 years. Like, I would say there are some mindset blocks and there are some energy blocks and they need to release it because we store a lot of emotion in the body. Mm, For sure. Yeah. And like, it's, it's time to try something new and different. And so if she's been doing writing, you know, maybe trying um, emotional freedom technique, which is tapping, maybe getting some Reiki work, maybe doing some yoga therapy, um, but trying trying a different avenue. It's why I work really integratively because um, a place that, you know, very smart people get stuck in the mind. I'm <laughs> one of these people, Everybody, right? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. and so we play things over and over in our head, and so we have to get out of the mind. And so sometimes you have to take it out of the mind and work on a different le- level, whether that's the physical level of the body or the energetic level. Um, but it also comes with that commitment and that choice. Again, I'm choosing to do the work no matter what. No matter how painful this is, no matter how long it takes, I'm choosing to do the work and eventually it will work. And not passively, you know, yeah. I hope this goes away, but saying, I want this out of my life. So I'm going to mm-hmm. embark on a process of letting go of forgiveness, of reframing. Absolutely. Yeah. It has yeah. to be an active pursuit. We can't wish it away. It doesn't, doesn't work like that. I thank you for sharing your story. As we close up this interview, do you have any final things that you'd like to share about the experience or healing? Um, I never wanted to think of myself as a victim or being in a victim mentality. That can sound really harsh when you're in that place. But it's also a gift because if you can recognize when you're taking on that victim role, you can do something about it. And if I'm the one who's making myself a victim, then I'm the one who can make myself not a victim. Mm-hmm. And you can choose at any time to, to flip that switch. And I'm not saying it'll stay flipped forever. Like it takes the continuous work, but, um, but you can decide to be a victim or you can decide to be empowered. Um, and, and I, and I want to clarify with that too, because saying 
when something happens to you that isn't your fault, that is due to the action of somebody else, it's easy to say, but I am a victim. I did not bring this on myself. So it's easy to stay in that space and say, I don't know, can't change facts here. I am a victim. But I think that what we're saying, what you're saying is that choosing out of victimhood means that you don't stay there, that instead you actively choose to find, to take the empowering approach of I can find something better and I can move past this and I can find meaning. Well, and you can, you can use a more empowering word and it's the same thing. You can say I'm a victim or I'm a survivor, Mm. Mm. right? Both of them acknowledge the facts. Both of them say this, this tragedy happened to me, but you can choose to live in the victimhood or you can choose to live in the survivorhood. So what do you think of the saying that things don't happen to you, they happen for you? I think it's true. And I think that it can cut like a knife when you're in the middle of the tragedy. And when you're, and that's one of the things I think it's really important not to get into this, like, well, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you just need to Mm -hmm. think differently. It all starts with compassion and acceptance. And allowing. Yeah. You have to meet yourself where you're at. You have to accept that this is the way you're feeling, but you also have to choose not to stay there forever, not to wallow in it. And you have to make a commitment to yourself that you're going to do the work to get better as, and it may be slow and that's okay. And, and, you're, and not at the beginning. Like you yeah. said, you have to make that commitment as oh, soon as yeah. something happens. It's like down the road, I'll figure out how I'm going to deal with this. But right, right now it just hurts right. like hell. Oh, yeah. I'm not okay. When this first happened, I said to my husband at the time, I said, the only way I can explain this is it feels like someone basically took a melon baller and scooped out my heart, but they left just a sliver so that I would know what was missing. Wow. And that's what it felt like. And there was no way in that moment if someone told me to, you know, buck up and be positive and be a survivor that I could do that. So you have to give yourself a chance to heal. But you also have to honor yourself to be willing to bring yourself back up again. Thank you. That's a great note to end on. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today for Donna's brave story of being a survivor, not a victim. Is there a story in your life where you feel like a victim? Can you reframe to honor yourself or those you love and see yourself in that light as the strong survivor that you are? Share this episode with someone who could use it today. And don't forget about the Love Your Story website, loveyourstorypodcast.com, for access to all the episodes for the reframing online course, and for the 21 Life Connection Challenges to help you create a life filled with more connection and possibility as you up-level in your own life. I'll see you next week on the Love Your Story podcast. Mm -hmm.